privilege to introduce our distinguished guest, Dr. Greg Jenkins, on this episode of the Pelvic Health Podcast. Dr. Jenkins is a remarkable individual whose expertise and commitment have had a profound impact on women in the areas of pregnancy, gynecological problems, and infertility. Dr. Greg Jenkins trained in the specialty of obstetrics and gynecology at Westmead Hospital after obtaining his medical degree from the University of Sydney. As well as working at Northwest Private Hospital, Greg is head of the obstetrics and gynecology department at Westmead Public Hospital. Beyond his academic achievements, Dr. Jenkins is known for his compassionate and empathetic approach to the sensitive topic of female genital cutting, which used to be called female genital mutilation. We'll get into more about, about that terminology as well. His work goes beyond research and extends into advocacy as he strives to raise awareness about the practice, promote dialogue, and contribute to the efforts to eradicate it. We are honored to have Dr. Greg Jenkins join us today, and we are eager to hear his insights on this important topic. So without further ado, let's jump into the conversation. Welcome. Thank you so much. Yes. Welcome, Dr. Jenkins, and thank you so much. Um, it is one of those topics that, yeah, like Laurie said, we've been interested in for a while. And I think um, we've become aware, I guess, as shocking as it is, um, certainly to us and probably our audience too, that the practice of female genital cutting is still prevalent today. So we thought we'd just define it to start with. Um, so the definition is it's a traditional practice in cultures around the world of which the original root is unknown. And it will involve partial or total removal of the external female genitalia for non-medical reasons. And according to the World Health Organization, there's an estimated 200 million girls alive today who've endured female genital cutting. And every year there's approximately 3 million girls who are at risk between the ages of birth to 15 years. And interestingly, here in Australia, a report in 2019 estimated that there were 53,000 women living in Australia who have been affected by female genital cut cutting, most of which occurred overseas. So you've been part of developing guidelines for caring for these women, obviously because you have seen it in clinical practice um, and particularly caring for them during pregnancy. So can you tell us more firstly about why these guidelines were needed? Yeah, so our, our journey is a little bit uh, interesting, I think, and provides a bit of a context for um, how we came to be where we are. So I worked uh, predominantly as a clinician at Auburn Hospital in Western Sydney um, before I took on a bigger role at Westmead Hospital. Um, and I think going back into the late 1990s, um, we saw our at Auburn Hospital, we saw our first case of a young woman, she was a 16-year-old girl who came in in labour in advanced pregnancy without having had any antenatal care. And she was a, a migrant from uh, an African country. Uh, and on inspection, uh, she had a type 3 um, female genital cutting procedure, otherwise known as infibulation, which left her with a very narrow vaginal introitus. And we had no idea how to look after her labour and birth. And unfortunately, she sustained quite severe perineal trauma and needed to go to operating theatre to have that repaired. And it was on the back of that that we realised that we sort of took a look at our community 
And at that time, it was on the back of a fairly large-scale civil conflict in Somalia. And there was a lot of Somalian refugees coming to Australia. And Auburn happened to be the area where most of them were being initially settled. And so we could see that potentially we had quite a significant community developing within the, our local health district and in, in the confines of where our hospital provided care. Um, and we really had no idea how to look after the reproductive health needs of these women with, with this, who had undergone this particular procedure in their country of origin. So that led to us looking around Australia to see if anyone else had come across this and whether there was any local policy or procedure that we could piggyback on the back of. And there wasn't really anything else at that time. So we gathered together a small group of, so I was approached by the midwives as a new consultant to the unit and, you know, bright and enthusiastic, well, bright-eyed and enthusiastic, <laughs> not so bright, um, and, uh, you know, interested and enthusiastic. And uh, so we got together a group of interested clinicians uh, and we basically needed to go to the, U the units in the UK that had developed policy and procedure around this and then piggyback on what they've done and then adapt that to our local needs. Uh, and we had quite an influx of patients across the next few years, so that enabled us to um, to learn a lot from the women that we were looking after by doing lots of listening um, rather than lots of talking uh, and look at, you know, what overseas units were doing as well and to develop um, quite an effective pro, um, process for looking after women who'd undergone these procedures overseas. And then out of that, we sort of became a resource for other units in Australia and took on um, a leadership role in development of policy and procedure but both within the college, within um, Australia generally, and, and also allowed us to take on an advocacy role in the community. So that, that's kind of how it all it all grew. It's quite a story, isn't it? It's um, yeah. it's always out the of, way. Out of, you... of, out of one case, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then more and more, and then it goes mm. from there. And there's different types or degrees of cutting that can occur and therefore different guidelines. Am I right about that or is that...? not correct yeah so the class the classification talks about four different um uh, types of um, female genital cutting so type one we didn't see very much so type one is really um quite a quite oh, i didn't say a small procedure in terms of trivializing it but in terms of the anatomical distortion that it causes type one are relatively minor procedures so mm -hmm. small cutting or nicking usually the clitoral hood would be type one a type two procedure will involve uh, the partial complete excision of the clitoris and some of the labia minora. So you get some partial obliteration of the vaginal introitus. And type three, so, so most of the women that we see would have undergone a type three or maybe type two procedure. So type three is pretty much excision of all of the external genitalia. So the, usually the complete labia minora, quite a lot of the clitoris, the clitoris, clitoral hood and um, a fairly large-scale obliteration of the vaginal introitus, so you have a very narrow introitus. Mm -hmm. And then there's a further group, which is type 4, which are the unclassified procedures, and, and um, I've not seen a woman who has a type 4 procedure, but people describe um, caustic substances and things of the like being inserted into the vagina to cause vaginal scarring and narrowing and uh, to my way of thinking that would be really quite difficult to manage. But we, we've not seen any women who've undergone 
type four procedures. So mostly um, type two and type three was what we'd say, and the majority will be type three. Yep. Okay. And then the guidelines of of how you do deal with that, I suppose, in pregnancy, we'd love to hear about as well because that is interesting. Yeah, so so the, the, the first thing to understand is that for women um, raised in a country where this is uh, where this practice is endemic, it, it's normal practice for them. Mm. So pretty much everyone is like them. So they don't think of it as being abnormal mm. at that time, that they wouldn't think of it as being anything abnormal or unusual. And they would just assume that when you rock up for pregnancy care and birth, that this is how people are and we just know what to do. Um, so the, the first challenge was trying to make sure that we identified um, all of the women in our service. That was our first goal, to, to have 100% identification so we didn't have anybody walking into labour ward that had a, an who'd had pregnancy care in our service who had an unrecognised um, procedure done and, and then following on from that to make sure that they were, had all been properly assessed by a clinician who has experience um, and that there was a plan for their care that was um, documented in the clinical notes that they were um, engaged with. Um, so that, that was really the, so it took a lot of education to get there and, and it, we, it sort of became part of every woman booking. So we thought, well, how do we approach that? And we decided the best way to approach it was to ask every woman who booked into our surgery whether they'd had any genital um, surgery or genital cutting procedures. Um, and you can ask that question in quite a sensitive way to um, to everybody who booked into the service, mm. and that's what we did. And we got to the point where we had no undiagnosed or unrecognised cases presenting in labour ward, and mm. that all women had had a conversation, all women had been affected had a conversation, and they were all connected with a midwife who had a particular interest and expertise, and then I sort of hovered in the background to be involved uh, as needed. Um, so that, that was how we approached it. Um, we took the view that uh, this was a particular problem if we were going to be unable to conduct routine intrapartum care. So if the narrowing of the introitus was to such an extent that we would not be able to do adequate vaginal examinations or um, put in a catheter if needed um, there, or do any other sort of basic labour procedures and assessments, then we would offer those women de-infibulation or opening up of their female genital cutting um, prior to labour and birth. And mostly we could do those procedures um, as a local anaesthetic procedure, um, just mm -hmm. as a, as a walk-in, walk-out kind of thing. And we, we skilled staff up to the point where um, we had one of our midwives doing most of those procedures. And then I would be involved with things that were a little more complicated and then for women that were a bit less severe, then we'd have a plan for them to have what's called an anterior episiotomy or opening up of their female genital cutting um, during the process of birthing. And then we did a lot of large-scale education to make sure that all of our midwives um, were comfortable in being able to perform that procedure. Do you wow. Did you have any measurements that were um, like specific 
you know, like with a prolapse, you do GH plus, or you can do a pop Q to look at uh, the distance or width of GH. Is there any specific measurements that you used as like a minute, like when you said if the introitus was too small to do a vaginal examination, was it just based on being able to use digital palpation or you had specific measurements? Yeah, that was kind of our assessment. So that, so I guess the gold standard was can you see the urethral meatus? And a lot of the time you won't be able to, but if you can still do um, a, a gentle two-digit vaginal examination, then you'll be able to adequately assess progress during labour. You would be able to rupture the membranes if, if the need arose to do that. You'd be able to do an assessment in later pregnancy if you're making decisions around induction of labour. You could put it on a fetal scalp electrode if you needed to, to monitor baby and labour. So if you could do a gentle two-digital, two-digit vaginal examination, the woman would tolerate that reasonably well, then that was sort of our market to say, all right, well, we probably don't need to offer this woman anything um, prior to labour and birth. Also bearing in mind that the women thought it was quite strange that we would want to do something to them before labour because where they came from, just everybody knew how to look after this in labour and any procedures that were necessary would be done at the time of labour and birth. So it required a bit of a sell to explain to them the rationale for why we would want to do this. Um, so what would they what would they do differently during labour and delivery that we would do here if they'd ha had that procedure done? Um, well, they're, because their birth attendants are dealing with this every day, they'd be much more mm. comfortable with dealing with an infibulated woman during labour. Mm. Um, and so that presumably they would do an anterior episiotomy kind of earlier mm. in the course of labour and they'd be comfortable with dealing with um, procedures that had caused more obstruction so our general, so we had to bear in mind that at three o'clock in the morning, there's not necessarily going to be anyone on the floor who's got mm. really high level expertise, but everyone can find their way. We, we trained everyone to be able to find their way through a fairly straightforward anterior physiotomy. Um, so we just explained that, you know, in our country, not everybody has a lot of expertise in dealing with this and that for their particular circumstance, there would be some advantages to their care in us doing this before the labour. And then if you approach that in a very gentle way and explain the rationale, um, nearly all women would, would come to agreement with that. And this is a, a journey that takes place usually over several visits. You know, like at, at the first visit, you might not even look at the woman's genitalia. You might just, just have a discussion with her and then schedule the next visit and say, all right, well, maybe the next visit we'll have a gentle look. And then the midwife would say, and, and if it looks a little bit complicated to me, then we have a doctor who works with our service and then he might need to have a look too. But, but we try and make sure that it was just the person that does the initial assessment is the person who has knowledge and expertise and can make decisions. So there's, there's, we try to minimise the need for multiple examinations. Mm -hmm. And also stressing that the first examination will probably just be a look-see. It might not involve any attempt at doing a penetrative examination or may not involve much touching at all. So you said it, it's just been... it's, so it's a cultural procedure um, that you said most of them have done in, I guess, in certain areas. Is it, um, I don't even know how to, word it but like 
is it sub like is it what is the reasoning behind doing it and it's a completely different discussion but should they be doing it um yeah so so the women that we will so we're predominantly looking after somalian community a little bit further western sydney there's quite a big sudanese community and in both of those countries at that time well over 90% of women had undergone a female genital cutting procedure and most of them were infibulations or type 3 right so it was it was sort of seen as the norm now the why is really challenging and raises a whole lot of questions about female sexuality and um, male perceptions of female virginity um, and um, sexual pleasure for women. And it raises a whole lot of quite complex issues that I think there aren't really simple answers for. But in the countries that had very high rates of female genital cutting, there's been a lot of education um, and there's been a lot of raising of awareness and there's a, a very strong moves to eradicate this practice. Um, if I can circle back to the guidelines, there's a there was an interesting study done in 2019, which a retrospective study looking at the mode of delivery and um, birth complications, comparing women with and without um, female genital cutting. So when I sort of saw the title, ignorantly, I just made a presumption that, you know, of course surely these women will be delivering via elective or emergency C-section. Surely there'll be more birth trauma if they do um, birth vaginally. But um, this study didn't find a difference um, in vaginal uh, birth rates, in forcep deliveries, in bontus rates. And now listening to you and the guidelines that you put in place, I presume that might explain why, because people are following the guidelines. What do you think? So a lot, a lot of there's a lot of fear and ignorance, and I think once you overcome that, so we just help support uh, a a unit that's uh, outside of Sydney that has had a woman present with uh, a type two FGM in the latter part of her pregnancy, and they hadn't come across dealing with this issue before so, and, and their reflex response was well she'll need a cesarean and we sort of unpacked that and did some video conferencing with them and provided them with some resources and um, they were able to get her to a, a, an uncomplicated vaginal birth wow. um, so it tends to be the reflex response you look at something and mm. go, oh my goodness that'll have to be a cesarean but um, once once you go past that um with appropriate care, certainly at Auburn, we found that there weren't any increase in um, any obstetric interventions. It's once you dealt with um, the the issue at the introitus, um, they could labour just like anybody else, and this women tended to labour well, and they'd have just as many vaginal births. Um, they do have an increased need for episiotomy. I mean, there is particularly a woman who's had an infibulation or a largish type two procedure. Um, there's quite a lot of scarring around the vaginal introitus and scar tissue just does not stretch that well. And we mm. learned fairly early on that even if you thought you might get away without an episiotomy, the consequences of not doing an episiotomy when you were wrong would often lead to quite severe perineal trauma. So we'd have a very, very low threshold, particularly if it's almost first vaginal birth, in doing uh, a, a, a medial lateral episiotomy. Mm. 
Um, so yeah, they're going to end up with more episiotomies, but there's no particular reason why they should have more cesareans or more instrumental births or more of anything else. And, and that was certainly our experience at Auburn. That's what we were able to deliver. Once you brought all the staff on board, um, you, you, could, you could deliver on this and this woman could expect really good um, labour and birth outcomes. Yeah, I just think that's fantastic. Job well done. Other, do they have any other complications? Uh, obviously not necessarily obstetric ones, which is awesome due to the guidelines, but other medical complications from the cutting? Yeah, so the, so the thing that we would often see, uh, um, which um, required a bit of work to, to, to figure out, was that women would, so if you've had a, um, a type 3 in fibrillation, um, type 3 um, cutting procedure, um, often the vaginal introitus might be, um, so you're holding a pen there, um, it, the introitus might be just about big enough to accommodate that pen that you have in wow. your right hand. Yeah. Yeah, wow. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so sexual intercourse is really difficult. And so we'd often have these women fronting up saying, oh, I'm getting married this weekend and can you fix this up for me so that I, you know, we can have relations on our wedding night. So it's uh, to understand the, it helps to understand the traditional context of this procedure that often in the villages where these women would be married in their countries of origin, there was a sort of a ceremonial dagger which would um, which the um, which the, the 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 groom would utilize on the wedding night, and then the that was sort of uh, in some communities the bloodstained sheets would be paraded the next morning to demonstrate to the community that um, his wife was a virgin and uh, they had had their first encounter on their wedding night. Um, so that so that sort of it helps to understand that background. So these women would come and. And that obviously that's not what's going to happen. Yeah, um, and they would see, be seeking our assistance so that their introitus could be uh, able to accommodate sexual intercourse. And of course, our health system is not set up to be able to deal with that. You know, getting a, an elective surgical spot on a often for these procedures, you, you'd often initially anyway we do them as a day surgery general anaesthetic, and so trying to get all that sorted in a timely fashion for them was was a little challenging. So yeah, so there are some issues around um, sexual intercourse. Sometimes if a woman is having heavy periods, um, passing clots through an introitus that's that tiny can be very challenging. So she might have to sit on the toilet and strain um, to pass menstrual clots. Um, the issue around UTIs is a little bit hard to yeah. unpack because it's, so there's women with this type of procedure will essentially be voiding into their vagina and then the urine will trickle out the small uh, opening on their perineum. So it's impossible to get a clean catch. Um, really? Okay. urine sample. Um, and, and, and so for many of them, it will, voiding will be a somewhat lengthy procedure. Um, so the issue around recurrent UTI is a little bit hard to unpack. Um, local pain can be an issue because if you're cutting through the clitoris, you can end up with neuromas and you can end up with um, dermal inclusion cysts along the line of the scar tissue that can sometimes mm. become quite large and, and also uncomfortable. That would, that would sort of be the, the main issues. Mm. That's quite a few though, isn't it, as well? And no other oh, yeah. bladder, like obviously they have some voiding dysfunction then because it's difficult to get that urine out. Do they get 
other, like obviously then the UTIs get a bit confusing if they're not emptying their mm. bladder completely. Do their bladders become a bit overworked, weird, oh, no. urgency, that type of thing? Well, I think they can void, well, their bladder functions all right. It's just the urine okay. can't escape their vagina. So they're voiding, essentially they're voiding into their vagina okay. and then depending on how how uh, large the opening is on their perineum, um, then it might take a while for the urine to empty from their vagina. But their okay, bladder function is actually quite okay. Yeah. Okay. It's certainly one of the things when we do a deinfibulation procedure, we need to warn the women that voiding is going to be a very different experience. Mm. So they, they wouldn't sit in a, in a toilet cubicle and be able to hear the splash of urine into the bowl. It would be a very quiet, gentle trickle. So some of them will be quite embarrassed about that there's going to be this big gush of urine when they void and it's going to make this big splashing sound when it goes into the toilet bowl and they would think that was a bit strange. So it's important. <laughs> there's lots of things to think about in terms of education. Someone will be really quite concerned that after we open the, their infibulation up that their genitals might just start falling out. Um, um, so, so there was a, a, quite a lot of um, sort of sensitive education to be provided. Yeah, that makes sense. And what age are they when they, when they, is that what you're going to ask, Laurie? No, 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 go. No. What age are they when the cutting happens, when they have the procedure done? Uh, from a small child up to the age of about 10. So some of these girls will have undergone procedures when they're seven or eight years of age and will have recollection. Um, a lot of them will have known girls within their village that um, didn't survive the procedure, either through hemorrhage or infection. Um, unless the woman expressed a willingness or a desire to want to talk about it, we usually wouldn't dive into asking them to the detail of, of how and when their procedure was carried out. Fair. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. For risk how of did... re-traumatising. Oh, yeah. Um, when they do have a successful vaginal delivery, how is recovery? Because they... Like even if you think of with respect to, because if they weren't having any, if they didn't have issues beforehand, then they're, you know, whether they have issues afterwards or not. But if they had dyspareunia before, they have a successful vaginal delivery. Have you found that recovery is the same or it's better? I would assume that dyspareunia would actually be better afterwards because there's more space after a vaginal delivery. Do they notice differences afterwards? Yeah, so there's a bit of a conversation that needs to happen because in their country of origin, it would be the usual expectation that you would stitch their um, their, their cutting back together again after they okay. give birth. So we would educate them that that's not what we do in Australia. We would put some stitches in to cover over any raw areas of um, any mucosal edges. And then we would allow, the way that we would phrase it, we would allow nature to determine how healing proceeded from there um, and get, getting them to be comfortable with that's how we approach things and that would be best for their health in the long term. And you're right, so issues like dyspareunia and things would often be much better um, after the procedure. And, of course, the other part of our advocacy was to, to make sure that if they were, had given birth to a baby girl, that they're very aware of the law in Australia and very aware that taking a girl from Australia overseas to have a female genital cutting procedure uh, is specifically against the law. The legislation is very clear about that. And if they play any role in that happening, 
um, they could be charged and would be at risk of, of losing custody of their child and, and have potentially a, a jail sentence in front of them. So that was, again, sort of gently explaining that that is, is how the law is in Australia. So we'll see that not only education about um, not re-suturing at birth, um, but also making sure they're very clearly aware of the law as it would pertain, um, pertain to their, their daughter. And is that education extended to their husbands and potentially family, or is it sort of just to the the woman that you're treating? Um, we would be keen to involve her support mm. people in this. Um, that really, the, the very interesting part of this is that this is this practice is very largely driven by women. Mm particularly elder women in the community. It's, it's um, Our experience has been that uh, this is not driven by men usually. But, but yes, we'll be keen to have her partner involved in any conversations if she's comfortable with that. Wow, it is quite a... Complex. Um, yeah, a little bit shock, mm. shocking. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Topic. I know that there does there are cases of it uh, occurring in Australia. Um, obviously, it is against the law, but I have read that there there are women who have been affected by it here, um, which I suppose again is something just to be aware of, isn't it? Um, for the general yeah, there's been community. one there's been one prosecution in New South Wales. Um, I'm not aware of any others, but um, yes, there, there has been one one successful prosecution in New South Wales. I think it's oh. it's such an important conversation too, because as physios, um, I I've had one patient who had had this done as a child who'd come to see me for dyspnea, um, and we so it had nothing to do with pregnancy. It was more along the lines of using dilators and and stretching and multidisciplinary. Um, teamwork, but I think, um, yeah, I don't know how many people come across it, but I think it's important for them to understand because at some point somebody will as well. Mm. Um, mm. And again, given given the prevalence and um, yeah, so thank you so much for your time and sharing uh, your expertise and all your information. Did did you guys have anything else that you wanted to ask him? No, that was amazing, Greg. I have nothing, nothing to ask. I'm slightly shocked with it all, but so interesting and amazing that you have done so well with it, I think, as well, mm. yep, in terms yeah. of their obstetric outcomes. Is there any future research that you're looking at doing or that you want to see done within this area? So we've... Um... The community that we were looking after has largely moved on from our local health district now. So we only mm. see quite small numbers. But because we have some knowledge and expertise, we have um, an educational video up on the RANSCOG website um, that clinicians can look at to, to walk them through a defibrillation procedure. Um, there, there is some really great educational resources out there for all healthcare providers. Um, so I think that would see see that as our main role now is supporting services and clinicians uh, if they feel that um, you know they're not sure what to do or they've encountered a, a woman with a particular issue 
um, to know that there are places you can go where you get the information and the support that you need to be able to provide her with uh, the care that she requires. Yeah, that's brilliant. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you. And I'll put up. If you've got any links, if you can send to us, that would be great. Mm. Otherwise, the links that I found, the guidelines that we have, I'll link in the show notes so that people um, have access to all that as well. Yep, fantastic. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your time. Um, And I hope that um, you have a a good rest of your day. Excellent. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank 